0: Things that slow us down. We're talking about accelerate. And there's certain things we've been speaking over the last few weeks about things that slow us down. Last week we spoke about fear, and I said there was healthy fear and unhealthy fear. And uh, healthy fear is the fear of God. We spoke about that last week. Well, fear is built into each one of us. Uh, Do you find it funny when people get a fright? Um, does your heart go out to them or do you roll about laughing Um, I find it very funny when people get a fright (laughs) Uh, so long as I'm not getting a fright as well that is. and uh, I heard about a man who was being charged by a rhinoceros and he ran for all he was worth and he saw a tree with an overhanging branch. So he jumped for the branch, but he missed it. But he caught it on the way down. Um, that's, that's uh, That's what fear does for you. It's necessary for survival. It's necessary to avoid danger. It's necessary for performance. The adrenaline pumps. Your pupils dilate to allow more light in. Blood rushes to the muscles. Um, as the fight or flight instinct kicks in. Fear is a stimulus that goads us into necessary action. And if you are a procrastinator, a little bit of fear is necessary uh, to galvanize you into some sort of actions. So fear fear is healthy, uh, but you also have unhealthy fear. And this morning I want to speak about fear and perfectionism. And I want to speak about fear and myself, and fear and relationships, and finally, about conquering fear. Fear and perfectionism. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 4, whoever watches the wind will not plant, and whoever looks at the clouds will not reap wise words we don't live in a perfect world it is very seldom that the conditions are absolutely perfect for what you plan to do and if you're going to wait for perfect conditions you're never going to do anything that's what that verse is saying it's very seldom that everything lines up in your favor that has always been, that is life that's what it is like And while we are waiting for the ideal moment, life passes us by. But fear is at the root of indecision. When we faff and we can't make up our mind about something, at the root of that is fear. We dither as we review the many things that could go wrong. So, You don't make the decision because you're afraid that you'll fail. What if? If you contemplate the what if, then you do nothing. The fear that you will embarrass yourself. It stops you from doing anything. The fear that you will make a commitment that you can't keep. Because you know yourself. The fear that someone will laugh at you. That someone will reject you. The fear that someone will label you. The fear of being called a hypocrite because of your past. That Nazareth complex that I spoke about previously. And so we dither instead of making decisions, instead of making decisions and taking actions. But it is fear that is at the root of that. I'm not saying be reckless. I'm saying don't be paralyzed into inaction. Sometimes it's a, the wrong decision is better than no decision. Because at least you can fix something. But if you make no decision, you've got nothing to fix. A boat can be steered only when it's moving. And even if the boat is going in completely the wrong direction, you can turn it around so long as it's moving. And so fear that stops you from paralyzing fear is unhealthy. I've observed that some can seek endless counsel but never ever make a decision. They never actually put something into practice. They never do. I went to the sorbet place and I said, can I please have some cream for cracked heels? And the lady sold me a pot of stuff and she said, remember, it only works if you put it on which was really good advice for me. (laughs) Solutions only work when you apply them. I've also noticed when people ask for advice, they'll ask for advice from 10 people till they get the piece of advice that they're actually looking for, which is what they wanted in the first place. They just wanted to talk about things, really. They just wanted to chew things over with somebody. They're not actually asking for a solution. So dithering... Saul was anointed king. And we always think of Saul as the bad king, but he wasn't a bad king. He was a very talented, gifted king. And when he was anointed king as a young man. 1 Samuel 10, 27, there says there were some troublemakers that saw him being anointed king. And it says... They said these words, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and bought him no gifts, the scripture says. But Paul kept silent, Saul uh, 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 kept silent. He didn't say anything later on. He, uh, he remembered those things, but in, in, in due course. So, what am I, why did I tell you that? You see, Saul had been on a journey that other people didn't know about. And if you are waiting for people's good approval, for people's good opinion, they don't know your journey. You've gone through things that they don't know about, you've had experiences that they don't know about. When you go back to somewhere where you were as a teenager, They talk about you as if you're still a teenager, not realizing that you've actually made some progress in life. And their view of you is a stunted view. You have a journey that others don't know about, that journey. And they evaluate you according to their incomplete knowledge of you. But you navigate and make decisions because change has taken place in you. I'm not saying just be reckless and don't care what people think. Don't care what people say and don't ask anybody for advice. Just go and do it. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about inaction. Where you want you ask 10 people, should I should I should I should I should I? Should I? Should I should I should I should I should I? Oh, okay, it's too late. You can't live your life like that. And at the root of that is fear because you're f- afraid of getting it wrong or embarrassing yourself or, or what, whatever. But you're not the person that you were. None of us, for better or for worse. We're not the people we were. Augustine, story is told how his Augustine, St. Augustine was a, 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 a reveler of notes. He lived a debauched life. His prayer was, God make me good but not yet um, and after he had a salvation experience and God had come into his life in a powerful way he was walking down the road one day and one of the women from his parting days was across the road shouting Augustine, Augustine and he ignored her and she shouted Augustine it is I and he replied yes but it is not I We've changed. Change comes into our life. And things that you couldn't do at one point you can do now. Because we've made progress in our lives. Fear is at the root of indecision. Fear and perfectionism. Excuses are fear in disguise. I can't talk. I stutter. It was Moses. Problem wasn't the stuttering. The problem was the fear. I'm too young it was Gideon the problem wasn't that he was too young the problem was that he was afraid I'm too old it was Abraham the problem wasn't the age the problem was what was going on in his heart so what's your reason What's your reason for not doing what you know God has called you to do? What is your reason for not making the decision that you feel you wanted to actually make? And you've talked about it, and you've faffed about it, and you've mulled over it, and you've spoken to so many people about it, and you've done nothing about it. He who studies the wind never plants, and he who studies the clouds never reaps. So I don't have money. I don't have a pedigree. I don't have time, I don't have experience, I don't have education, I don't have resources, I don't have the right temperament, my personality is wrong, I've got the wrong past, I've got the wrong parents, I've got the wrong wife, I've got the wrong husband, I live in the wrong neighborhood. You know what those all are? An indication of fear inside of you, that you too scared to make the decision that you actually need to be making. If only I was single. If only I were married. If only I were older. If only I were younger. If only others saw me the way I saw myself. If only others recognized me. But it's their fault because they don't recognize me. It's just their fault. Not my fault. Life doesn't arrange itself around us. We have to live in somewhat of a muddle, and we have to make the most of adverse circumstances. We've got to sail against the wind. Life is sailing against the wind nonstop. The wind is never at your back. It's just like that. Just like that. And so perfectionism paralyzes. The planets are not going to align for you and they're not going to align for me. So don't stand on the curb waiting for that gap in the traffic. As they say in Joburg, when you want to cross the road, it's the quick and the dead. Well, uh, you can stand there waiting for cars to slow down and to stop to let you across. That's where they'll find you one day. The illustration of an on-ramp You know, on the freeway, on the on-ramp, you get the on-ramp, you go onto the freeway. You know what the on-ramp is for? We all know that the on-ramp is for picking up speed. The on-ramp isn't to search for a gap in the traffic. It's to get your speed up. And if you, if the traffic's moving at 120 k's an hour, at the end of that on-ramp, you need to be moving at 120 k's an hour. Well what if there's no gap when I reach the end and I'm doing 120 ks an hour, then what's going to happen to me? No, when you reach the end of that on ramp, at 120k an hour, there will be a gap. Or you make one. And 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 you and and you and and so you make so you get into the traffic that way. But there you get the nervous person who goes onto the on-ramp, looking over their shoulder and they slow down, and they slow down, and at the end of the on-ramp, they come to the stop. What happens? Disaster. Speed up and the gap will happen. Don't be a timid soul. And that's an illustration. That's a parable that you can say. Church life and ministry and the using of gifts has on-ramps. In church life, there are on-ramps. Areas to pick up speed. To get to know yourself and to to allow others to get to know you. What's my gift is not the right place to start when you want to serve in church. What can I do? That's the right place to start. It might be in the wrong place, but any place is better than saying, What's my gift? I am a prophet. Oh, are you? Well, there's a lovely church down the road that are looking for prophets at the moment. That'll be the response from any responsible leader. No, you don't start there. You start on the honor and picking up speed, washing dishes. You pick up speed in the foyer. You sp- pick up speed in the meetings. You pick up speed worshipping. You pick up speed in the chat room. You pick up speed ministering to the kids. You sp- you pick up speed in many, many ways. And over time, the gap appears and you find yourself in. So there so are on ramps. Start anywhere. The spot isn't important, it's the speed that is important. And stop being timid. Fear and myself. Point number three. Fear and myself. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And then he goes on in the rest of that passage to talk about how much he struggles. I've been reading Louis Palau's autobiography. Louis Palau is probably one of the most significant evangelists of the 20th century, not well-known in South Africa, Spanish-speaking, um, uh, well known in South America uh, and in North America and in Europe uh, but, uh, but not so much in our circles mentored by Billy Graham learned a great deal from Billy Graham and I found his autobiography very edifying and, and, and quite moving and he's just a simple person and he talks in very simple terms And he talks in one chapter about his children. And I found it very helpful and very moving. And he talks about Billy Graham at a crusade. They were at a crusade in Holland. And they were sitting in the front row. He and his wife and his children. And Ruth Graham and her kids were sitting there. And Billy Graham went up onto the stage to preach. But just by way of introduction, before he started his actual sermon, he started to introduce his family. And Bunny Graham, one of the daughters, whispered to Louis Pillau's wife, Watch, he's going to forget me. And Billy Graham started to introduce his wife, one kid, two kids, three kids, and he left. Billy Graham out. Palau describes how when he was writing his autobiography three times, he took it out of the manuscript, that story, and three times he put it back in. Because he thought, am I gonna appear as if I'm trying to make myself look good by comparing myself to Billy Graham? That I did a better job with my kids than he did with his kids? But eventually he included it. And he explains why he included it, that story. He says, I included it. Lest people think that these heroes are massive personalities without any mistakes and flaws in their lives. It'll help someone. And he talks about his own struggles with his own own kids. All of us, are jars of clay. Billy Graham was a jar of clay that God used and he spoke and his children have spoken quite extensively in fact about the tensions and the difficulties that the family had because Billy Graham was away so much that he spent so little time with his kids and so much responsibility was on his wife's shoulders for raising the family that he never gave, he gave more attention to presidents than he gave to his own children and that was a criticism that he leveled at, at himself he was a jar of clay but all of us have our struggles all of us have our fault lines all of us have our cracks and our blemishes and God puts his treasure inside of us but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us to draw the attention away from the us and to draw the attention towards the treasure, to draw the attention towards God instead of towards us. And you're not perfect. You're not a perfect mom. You're not a perfect dad. You're not a perfect example. You're not a perfect pastor. You're not a perfect elder. You're not a perfect whatever. My point to you this morning is don't allow your frailty to paralyze you. God wants to use you, and when he does, people will know that it is God because they know you. They know who you are because you are flawed yourself. Don't be afraid. God does it this way for a reason. And so fear and myself. I don't want to, be, I don't want to serve God because I know who I am. It is because you are who you are that God wants to use you. It's your very clayness. It's your very frailty that God finds useful. What about Timothy? 2 Timothy chapter one. Timothy is an interesting personality. There's a great deal that you can deduce validly About Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 6. For this reason, I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. In other words, Timothy, I'm aware that the flame that once burnt in you is burning down. What God gave you is not burning as brightly anymore. Is that true of anybody here? Is that true of me? That at one stage there was a flame that was burning and it's and it's burning down. He says, give it attention, fan it into flame. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity. Why is it burning down, Timothy? The thing that's quenching the flame is the, the timidity. That's the next thing that he says. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity. Timothy was timid, but a spirit of power, of love. And of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed, verse 8, to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. We were doing some spring cleaning last month. And going through old files, seeing what could be turfed. Came across a letter written in 1940-something by my father, handwritten letter. Uh, and it wasn't photocopied because they didn't have photocopiers. He must have written it with carbon paper or else it was returned. I don't know. But there is this letter written in ink, written to an aunt of his in England. And my father was sort of disinherited from the family because he left the Anglican flock and he went and he took up with what was regarded as probably worse than Mooney's. Um, some organization called the Assemblies of God. And so she'd written a letter to him, which isn't present, but you can deduce what it's about, asking, because he's now in the ministry, asking whether he gets paid a salary, <clears throat> asking whether he's being responsible, asking him whether it's not, a, 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 whether a rational alternative is not for him to come to England and, and seek some sort of bishopric. You, you can become a bishop, you know, if you, if you want to study theology, um, and uh, and it's his somewhat testy pointed um, it's no wonder he got disinherited when you read the letter um, back to the aunt telling her why he did what he did what he's earning what the situation is and, 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 and so on and so it is that's there's some shame attached. Others attach shame to him, to being a part of the assemblies of God. There's no status there. Times have changed. But in those days, it was, if you were Pentecostal, you were you were a bit of a lunatic. Um, that was the way that it was. So there was. But with Paul and Timothy, there was some shame as well. Who's your leader? Paul. Oh, he's the guy that's in prison. Um, he's the guy that, what did he do to go into prison? Um, it, was, it was a little bit embarrassing to have your hero and leader locked up in prison. And so Timothy was timid. And this would have counted, in, it would have played in his mind. And Timothy's struggles could have been temperamental. Timothy had stomach issues. Take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Um, uh, Timothy had a soft heart. I remember your tears, Paul writes. Paul says to him, Don't argue so much. Timothy was probably a little bit shrill. Uh, he was a little bit uh, argumentative, a little bit defensive, a little bit edgy. But he reminds Timothy that the timidity doesn't come from God. Timothy, God never gave you that. But God gave you a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. If you are a fearful person, a timid person, if you are a person, and I am a person, that cannot make a decision because I'm afraid of getting it wrong, that never came from God. it's, It's not because of God's high standards that you feel like that. It's because of your own fear that you feel like that. What comes from God is power, love, and a steely determination, a sound mind. So let's make peace with our clayish nature. That's what we are made of. And let's look to see what God puts into us. And so we are crackpots. You can turn to your neighbor and say, I can see that you're a crackpot. Um, that, that That is what we are. We want to do it right. Have you ever heard this? Have you ever heard people saying this? If I'm going to do it at all, I'm going to do it properly. Have you ever heard people say that? I say, humbug, bar, nonsense. If I can't do it well, I won't do it at all. Is is the wrong refrain. That thinking slows us down. I will only do it if I know I can get it right. That's what you actually are saying. Because my ego cannot cope with the mistake. My ego cannot cope with not getting it to 100%. My ego demands praise. People say, whoa, when he does it, you know it's going to be so fantastic. He always has such high standards. That is feeding your ego. Does it need doing? Yes. I may not be the best motor mechanic in town. Believe me, I'm not. But if you need help, I'll come and do what I can to help Instead of saying, no, I only do things that I can do really well, we cannot contemplate the horrible option of failure. What if David had thought, hmm, Goliath, I only do things that I know I can do well. I'm only going to do things that I know I'm not going to get right. What if David had thought, what if I miss? What if I miss? What will the consequences be? No, David never gave a thought to those things. He ran at Goliath. As he was going, running at Goliath, his legs were probably saying to his mind, what on earth do you think you're doing? But he went and Goliath went down. I know he took three stones. One was for a sighter. One was for a victory shot. But he only needed one. What about fear and relationships? I was sitting with a vet We've got this rescue dog called Otto, which I sometimes mention. He's been a rich source of sermon illustrations, has, has this dog. And I was sitting at December time over a cup of coffee with a vet in, in Cork Bay. And I was describing Otto. Otto was actually with me um, at the time. And I told him how when we'd rescued Otto, he'd initially been very aggressive towards other dogs. And the vet said, ah, that's because he was scared. What does fear do to relationships? Fear makes us aggressive. This seems counterintuitive. People get aggressive not when they're sure that they're right, but when they're not sure that they're right. People get aggressive not when they're feeling secure. They get aggressive when they're feeling insecure. That's the way that it is. So fear makes us aggressive. Fear makes us defensive. If people point out faults, we retaliate or smart or seethe inwardly. We struggle when people point out our, that's fear inside of us. Fear makes us distant, makes us hide our emotions. And that's age old. Remember right at the beginning, the first thing that happened after the fall was Adam and Eve went and hid. And God said, What are you doing? They said, We heard your voice and we knew we were naked and we were afraid. And so we went and hid. We hide ourselves. They're hiding. We hide our personalities. We don't let, <clears throat> we don't let people in. We put, on a, we put on a tough persona. That's not an indication. Of security. When I beat my breast and I make myself look really big, that's because I think I'm in danger and someone's going to take me out. And so I want to try and dissuade them. I want to try and show them that that's not a good idea. What is that a result of? That is a result of fear. Fear makes us demanding. The more insecure we are, the more we want to control things. We seek to dominate. We want to have the last word in matters. And so we become so demanding When we are fearful. So, fear, in a nutshell, destroys trust and fear destroys intimacy. And the Bible agrees with what I've just said because it says in 1 John chapter 4, let me read from verse 16. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. So beautiful. We rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives, who, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. <clears throat> in this way, God in this way, love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment, because in this world we are like him. Then it says this, verse 18, take note. <clears throat> there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. The last thing that I want to say is that if I know that I am loved, I become a different type of person. There's no fear in love. My greatest need in life, Jeff's greatest need in life, is to be persuaded of the love that God has got for me. I spoke about healthy fear and the fear of God, and that's a different matter. We spoke, we addressed that last week. So we're talking about a different matter now. <clears throat> I need to know that God loves me. For me, it's not the power of God that I need to study, it's not the existence of God that I need to prove. It's not the plans of God that I've got to understand. It's not the doctrines of God that I've got to plunge. For me, initial and primary and foundational is this. God loves me and I don't have to be afraid. Perfect love casts out fear. It turns me from being that aggressive, hidden, demanding person to being an open person, a trusting person, a loving person, a person who will do it even if I get it wrong because it's not about me. If I know inside that God loves me, everything else changes. The will of God becomes pleasing to me. The people of God... Come close to me. Death loses its sting for me because there's something better ahead. I come, I chew my way like a a butterfly chewing its way out out of a cocoon. I chew my way out of my fears, and I am set free to be what God had in mind for me to be. I deal with fear. I emerge as a butterfly at that time.